Hello and welcome to the Line Edit Podcast, generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. I'm your host, James Ryerson. On these podcasts, I speak with academics about the craft and process of writing about their work for a popular outlet like a newspaper or a magazine rather than a scholarly outlet like a journal. These are people who are writing about everything from topics in psychology to debates in quantum physics to deep questions about the nature of reality to the ethics of parenting. These are typically short pieces for wide audiences about the big questions. Who am I? Uh, I've been an editor at the New York Times since 2003, first at the Sunday Magazine and now at the Opinion Pages. Uh, Over the years, I've edited all kinds of pieces by all kinds of writers on every single topic you can imagine, but I specialize in working with scholars and academics. Before I worked at the Times, I was deployed at Yale Law School, uh, editing a magazine about legal scholarship. And before that, I did stints at Lingua Franca, a magazine devoted to covering the life of the mind, and at Feed, an early online-only magazine that covered science, technology, and culture. Uh, Before that, I worked at the United States Department of Justice, where I did none of those things. On today's uh, episode, you're going to hear a conversation between me and David Steno. I've known uh, Dave for some time, first through the process of editing him at the New York Times over the course of, I don't know, maybe 10 pieces over the last few years. Uh, but I also have gotten to know him personally. He uh, is one of the academics involved in these Templeton workshops that have given rise to these podcasts. Um, and he's a wonderful, popular writer, uh, a fantastically interesting scholar, and an uh, incredible guy. Uh, we uh, we met in the, uh, in the testing room of... Uh, of a laboratory that I believe belongs to Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, the other psychologist who works on these workshops with us. Uh, I remember the first time I saw this uh, laboratory, I was struck because I had been working with Lisa for a couple years on pieces. And until I walked into this physical space, I realized it had never really occurred to me that she actually conducted experiments. When you're an editor on the other side of these pieces, the the experiments and the research are they're just things you can cite or plug into an argument. And uh, to walk around and see signs for research subjects and machinery and rooms that are soundproofed and all these kind of uh, this just elaborate apparatus was a real revelation. Sometimes as a, as a regular reader of this stuff, you, you forget how much work is actually involved in conducting experiments. Uh, in today's conversation, we're going to talk about uh, just one of the many pieces Dave has written for me. This one is called What Science Can Learn from Religion. Uh, all of Dave's pieces are interesting. This one was both interesting and perhaps a little bit more provocative than some of his others uh, in the sense that he wasn't just talking about a particular body of research, but he was talking about a whole cluster of types of research and what he thought their implications were for the larger cultural debate going on about the place and value of religion in society, a debate that some of you will associate with the so-called new atheists, a group of scientists and polemicists who believe that religion is not just wrong, but also damaging uh, and harmful to society. I really enjoyed talking to Dave about this particular piece because he did so many different and for him often new things in this piece. Uh, He interviewed a lot of people, which he doesn't typically do for his pieces. He was, as I said before, broadening the uh, reach of his argument a little beyond what he customarily does. Um, 
And uh, there was also a fairly interesting and passionate response to his piece, which we get into a bit in the conversation. In addition, this piece uh, has, has now led to a larger book project that Dave is working on. Um, and we talk a little bit about how doing a piece in the Times can be sort of a dry run for a larger argument in a book and uh, what the benefits of doing that can be in terms of writing a book later on on the same topic. So uh, I'm excited to bring this conversation to you. Enjoy it. And uh, if you're interested, uh, remember to stick around to the end of the podcast where we will um, reveal uh, some exciting additional resources that you can look at if you're interested in Dave, his piece, and this kind of writing. So I'm grateful today to be in the uh, bowels of some sort of laboratory building at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, to talk to David DeSteno. Uh, the f main thing we're going to talk about today is a piece he published uh, in the New York Times called What Science Can Learn from Religion, which uh, was published in February of 2019. Uh, Dave, before we start talking about the piece, I just wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, you. You're a psychologist, right? Yes, I'm a psychologist. Uh, I spend my time studying how emotions affect people's behavior. We're primarily interested in how it affects behaviors related to how we all get along in this world, things that are have a moral cast or an economic cast or cooperation, et cetera. So what's an example of the sort of uh, emotion you might uh, focus on in a study? Probably gratitude is the biggest one we focus on. We focus on things like compassion and empathy. Gotcha, gotcha. And at some point in your uh, academic career, you decided to start... Uh, writing about these sort of things that you study, not just in journals or other sorts of uh, official academic uh, publications, but in more popular venues, uh, whether it's trade books or magazines or newspapers. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the decision process that you went through to, to, to start writing in those forms? Sure. I think it comes down to the fact that I'm a person who gets bored easily. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, I, I spent years both as a graduate student and then as an assistant professor kind of honing my craft to be an experimentalist, which I love doing the science. But after a while, writing the, you know, the scientific article can get kind of boring. It's very staid. It's very mechanical. Um, there's not much room for creativity. Uh, and nor should there be. I'm not arguing that there should be, although I think we could all do a better job in writing those things uh, than we do. Um, but I, I wanted to reach a bit of a wider audience, and I wanted to write a little creatively. I, I had kind of a an artistic desire. And if you know me, you know that I have no artistic ability. I can't, <laughs> I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. Music to me is an ordinal scale, not pitch based. Uh, I can't draw to save my life. And so the only real artistic outlet I could have was in writing. Um, and I started to give a few more public talks and people were very interested in the ideas. And so I decided, let me, you know, try this. And so I sent probably about, as most people do doing this, you know, five or six op-ed pitches that got trashed at the New York Times, uh, including by Jamie Ryerson. And then um, finally one of them hit. Um, this was a, a piece on, on compassion. And um, it was just really enjoyable to reach a wider audience and to be able to write in a way that allowed me to get the ideas out there uh, in a way that was based in the science uh, and, and accurate to it but allowed a little bit more of, of expansive thought and um, speculation uh, in a responsible way. And I really enjoy that. And so from then on, as, as you said, I've 
written pieces for the Times. I've written longer form articles for um, Pacific Standard, uh, pieces for Mother Jones in the Atlantic. And it for me, it balances the science and the creativity. I, I would never want to only be a writer in the sense of the public venue because I feel I, I want to be part of the scientific creative process as well. But I kind of need both because when I get bored with one, I can go back to the other. So in addition to uh, a creative uh, uh, reason for writing this way, um, do you have any uh, other uh, higher, higher-minded uh, rationalizations for for the importance of this kind of writing. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> ones that aren't just self-interested in, in me having some fun. Yeah, no, you raise a good point. Um, you know, one of them, and, and as a scientist, I feel responsible for this. It's the same thing when when I get grants. You know, our grants, whether it's from the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, et cetera, you know, they're funded by taxpayers in this country, um, and they allow me to do my work, and I feel a responsibility to then make that work accessible to the farmer in Iowa or the mechanic in Birmingham and, and to do it in a way that is accessible to them. You know, sometimes when we read scientific articles, they're barely accessible to us. And so um, I think giving them some return on their investment by access to this in a, in a, in a venue that is um, widely uh, accessible at, uh, at low charge and at, at written in a way that is understandable by someone who's not a scientist is really important. The other reason is also a self-interested one, like creativity, but in, in, in a good way. And, um, you know, when I started writing these articles or writing books primarily, you start to get invited uh, to give talks in public venues or in more interdisciplinary um, venues. And to me, that's scientifically rewarding because I can go to a, so I'm a social psychologist, I can go to a conference by social psychologists, we have many a year. And nine times out of 10, I know what everybody's going to say before they <laughs> say it. Um, but when I'm talking to economists or CEOs or people in the healthcare industry, they'll raise questions about the work that make me think about it in ways that I haven't before, ways that will help me form new hypotheses or, hypotheses or open avenues for collaboration uh, in more ecologically valid environments that wouldn't have been open to me. And so, you know, I say it's selfish, it's, it's, it's creative, but it, it really does feedback helping my own scientific productivity as well as hopefully the people that I'm collaborating with. And off the top of your head, can you think of an example of a question posed by, say, a banker or a Google employee or somewhere where you might have been presenting your work where, uh, you know, you went on to actually uh, maybe investigate a different question than you had expected to or that you modified some aspect of the scope of your inquiry or something like that? Sure. Um, several years ago, um, I gave a talk at Facebook. And at that time, one of the big problems Facebook was dealing with, and they're still dealing with it, is, is how do they handle um, hostile interactions online? And uh, we have work looking at uh, what makes people feel more compassionate toward each other. And one of the big things is, is how similar you feel to someone else, how, how much a sense of connection you have. The question is, how do you do that online when discussions and interactions are asynchronous and all the nonverbals that we usually look at aren't there. Um, and so it, it caused us to think about how can we take this idea and work with Facebook to generate uh, new uh, online platforms, social media-based platforms to accomplish the same thing. Because think about it, Facebook knows a lot about you and what you like, and there's lots of ways to surface to people what makes them, what connections they have with others. And so um, I began thinking about how can we take what we know in the lab and do it at scale. To do it at scale these days basically means doing it via a lot of social networks. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, when you started doing this kind of more popular writing, were there models, uh, whether at 
at the level of trade press books or articles and magazines, uh, you know, other pieces by social scientists that you had seen that either inspired you and you wanted to emulate them in a very specific kind of way, or were they just inspired you in a more abstract way to, to do this kind of writing and to, and to, and to see it uh, as something that'd be worthwhile and doable? Yeah, I'd say about, about five years before I started, I remember seeing the kind of first wave of, uh, and I'll speak to psychologists because those are the ones I know, but I think it's probably a similar issue, mm-hmm. um, coming out with popular books or op-ed pieces that actually um, brought their work to the public. So the, the two that I remember are, are Dan Gilbert and Dan Ariely, um, both with books and with op-eds. And finally, I, I, I had this revelation, which was, you know, mm-hmm. people like David Brooks or Nick Kristof will often translate science uh, to the public in, in questions that, that they care about, areas that they care about. And that's great. I'm glad they do it. Um, but there's no reason why we can't either, being one step closer to it and to feel empowered by that. I think that the hardest thing to, to overcome as a, as a academic in doing this is we're so trained to think about narrowly what we do and to talk about that. So, you know, this piece that we'll talk about in a few minutes is a great example. I don't really work on this, you know, the psychology of religion. Ten years ago, I never would have thought about writing something like this because it's not, I don't have a large corpus of research in this area. But if David Brooks can write about it without expertise, why can't I? In the sense that I understand the research, I'm closer to it, I'm in some ways, no offense, David, in some ways, <laughs> you know, better able to deal with the, the, the specifics and the nuances of that literature. Um, and I feel empowered to basically talk about stuff, even though it's not directly related to what I'm actually doing in my lab. And I think for scientists who want to be communicators, we need to feel empowered to do that. But circling back to your question, I think it was was original work by by folks like that, by Stephen Levitt at Freakonomics that kind of inspired me to kind of want to try my hand at it. What's the most important thing you've learned doing this kind of popular writing? Either about the craft of writing or about the work itself? Huh. There are a few things. First, don't do it before tenure. <laughs> um, but uh, did I, you? You did it after tenure. I did it right after okay. tenure. Yeah, it was the first the first pieces that I sent to you, which were tied to the release of my first book. Um, I think one nice thing about it is it forces you in the same way. Well, not in the same way. So for those of you who are scientists, we spend a lot of our time writing grants. And one of the nice things about writing grants is it makes you think very clearly not only about what you're doing in the moment, but about the progression of uh, those ideas and how they fit together. And I think in some ways, this type of writing does that as well, because I have to create a narrative that is theoretically accurate and compelling and is at the 34,000 foot level in some sense, not the, in the study two, I'm conducting a power analysis and an ANOVA and we have an outlier. Um, And so in that sense, it helps me focus at a very broad level on what I'm trying to say, which helps crystallize it in my mind for what I've done and where I'm going. And it kind of gets me out of my tunnel vision sometimes, which helps me think about, oh, here's a direction that might be useful to go next. Or here's how it connects to Professor X's writing or Professor X's projects. Right. So if I hear you write something like, um, rather than just continuing to study gratitude as a uh, aspect of our psychology, uh, you might be forced to to 
remind yourself why studying gratitude in this way is ultimately, you know, valuable beyond just learning something about it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it, it forces me to, to look at it in a larger picture. So I just did a piece for, for Aeon, which um, was kind of that. So we looked back at, I looked back at about the work on gratitude we've been doing for 10 years. And one thing that became clear to me is that um, we're seeing gratitude affect lots of different virtues. It makes you more generous. It makes you more honest. It makes you help people. It gives you better self-control. And in that sense, it coalesced in my mind an argument that is kind of a little different than the virtue ethicists, which is the, only, the way to live a life well lived is not only through uh, uh, having a well-examined life. But you can kind of hack it along the way if you if you allow yourself to feel gratitude. If you cultivate it, it allows you to build those behaviors kind of automatically from the bottom up, rather than from a deliberation about how should I live in this world. And I never would have really put it together in that way if I weren't trying to think about, hmm, what's a good pitch for this this work that I've been doing ten years that that, that might appeal to philosophers. Okay, great. I'd like to start talking about. Uh, the piece that um, we're going to dive into a little today, uh, it is, again, called What Science Can Learn from Religion. And again, it was published in the New York Times in February of this year, 2019. Um, how did the uh, idea for the piece come about? So this is, again, one of those reflection pieces for my end. Um, for the past 15 years, we've been working on things like gratitude and compassion and empathy and um all these things that you might call moral emotions, things related to virtue. And I also had a few students who were working on meditation, uh, not so much on the kind of brain angle, not how does it affect your white matter or your executive control, but actually how does it affect people's ethical behavior. And what I began to see is the things that we were finding and other people were finding for these moral emotions um, and elements of ritual, things like motor synchronization of movement, um, you see again and again and again in, in religion. And it also kind of made me think about uh, the kind of hard take that many of the new atheists have right now, which is that all of religion is folly. Or Sam Harris might say, all of religion except meditation <laughs> is folly. Um, and to me, that, that struck me as the same type of fundamentalist argument that fundament, fundamentalist religious folks make on the right when they say all of science is bad and the devil's work. I mean, true enlightenment thinking is saying, let's go where the data take us. Any question is, is, is in play as long as we can answer it scientifically. And so I wanted to make the argument that I think in ignoring religion, um, we are ignoring a corpus of information, uh, a corpus of ideas that we should plumb as scientists. I mean, if you think about it, the pharmaceutical companies bioprospect all the time. They'll go to the rainforest and see what certain indigenous tribes say, ah, oh, this plant is good for this type of ailment. Uh, of course, they don't know why, they don't understand the biology, but they'll look at it. And you know, for every hundred plants they'll look at, they might find one that works. And the argument I wanted to make for religion is the same. Yeah, we're not gonna learn about the nature of the cosmos or the biology of disease from religion. But if we look at not theology, but the practice on the ground, the rituals that people do day to day, these folks have been doing this for millennia, and there's lots of convergences across religions for the way rituals, rituals work. And not that we as scientists should ever take it um, blindly, blindly on faith, but I think if we don't kind of religio prospect, we don't look and see what they do to help deal with grief or transitions or 
other type of problems that people face, then we're giving up on hypotheses. And, and you know, I'm working on a book on this topic now. And what I find again and again is these folks have been using techniques that we scientists have discovered in the 20th century and given a name to, but they've been using for thousands of years. Uh, and so that was my my argument behind this piece again, which was a piece that that's larger, not based on my work, but kind of a a meta science piece in the sense that hey, we as scientists should think about these issues. So that's really interesting. You're you're telling me that the individual components of this argument uh, were addressed in studies by you or by colleagues um, in ways that uh, spoke to a a larger kind of question or a larger kind of debate. Um, but it wasn't until you sort of started writing this piece that you were putting it together in a kind of larger framework that could be presented to a reader, that there's a, a debate going on um, about the worth and value of religious traditions. Um, and you felt you had something to say about that debate, maybe not um, taking a position in the conventional sense. Um, and you're not taking a new atheist position, you're not taking an anti-new atheist position per se, but that you felt you had something that all this all this research could be brought together to allow you to say something that was relevant to that debate um, in a way that would be interesting to, to, to readers in a way that your other academic research hadn't necessarily framed it in those terms. Yeah, and I think of it, please don't don't think that I, I'm engaging in self-aggrandizement because I'm not, but this is the, in some ways the analogy that I think of. It's kind of like a Nixon goes to China moment in the sense that, you know, you have a scientist who's willing to come out and say, I think there's value here. Uh, I think there's something that we should look at. And because among scientists, religion has kind of this uh, it's all folly. It's all it's all nonsense. Um, everybody believes in, you know, the flat Earth or or intelligent design that we're not going to touch any of it. And I and I think someone who's a scientist needs to make the argument that you know let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There may be something there to look at, and we should use our tools and our epistemology to evaluate it. So one thing I notice about uh, the um, published version of this piece that's also true of the first draft of the piece. Um, is that unlike all the other pieces you'd written for me, and I, I, I think unlike a lot of the other pieces you've written for other people, um, there, is, there are a number of um, interviews with people in this piece. You're kind of putting on, to some degree, uh, more of a journalist cap and going around and talking to people. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about why you started doing that and how that, how that went? Sure. I think because so many of the other pieces I've written, both for you and, and for other venues, is really tied to my own research. And so... It's like interviewing yourself. I'm telling you the story of what we did. This is a much larger argument, and there are lots of people in society who are involved in the in the debate on different sides. And so when I was talking to you about this piece, um, it was you actually who suggested, you know, why don't you, instead of just say the new atheists say this or someone else says this, why don't you actually talk to people who are kind of on the ground in the trenches having this conversation in the public? And I thought that was a great idea. And to me, this was actually one of the most fun parts of this piece because in the many pieces I've written before, never have I interviewed anyone. And so it was fun to kind of put on the journalistic hat and try and, and, try and do that. Um, and I think it was really important because, you know, so for this piece, I talked to Steve Pinker and to Krista Tippett and to uh, Rabbi Jeff Middleman, who, who runs a, a kind of science and religion organization trying to bring the two together. Um, and it helped me kind of frame my own arguments as well because in talking to them, I heard, and of course, you know, there are only small snippets of what the actual interviews with them contain that are put in this article because of space. It helped me think about what the arguments were 
on each side. And that helped me actually, I think, explain stuff in a, helped me sharpen my own arguments, but also present it in a more accurate way to the, to the public. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, this is Dave DeSteno. Here on Line Edit, we strive for accuracy. And on the way home after recording this with Jamie, something was bugging me. And I realized that I had actually done an interview before um, for a piece I wrote many years ago uh, for The Atlantic on, on meditation. I had the, the great benefit of interviewing Ariana Huffington and, uh, and Ming Tan. And for some reason in that moment, I didn't remember it. And I think it was because that was a piece where everybody agreed and the interviews were kind of uh, short and sweet. And I'm grateful to them for speaking with me. But um, in the piece I'm talking about here with Jamie, it was a much more contentious subject and, and very much more in-depth interviews, only small parts of which we were able to actually fit in the piece, as you'll hear. Um, so thank you, Ariana, and thank you, Ming. Uh, now, back to the podcast. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. What I remember thinking is, for the first time, you were kind of uh, framing a lot of your research in a way that had implications for a, a kind of larger cultural debate about religion and the worth of religion that the new atheists had revived. Um, and it seemed that one possibility was to simply put out your argument and see how people responded. Um, but another possibility was to rather than publishing the argument and then waiting to see how people responded, was to reach out to some people who might be sympathetic uh, or who might not be sympathetic and to give them at least uh, a kind of sense of, of what you were thinking um, and then to try to incorporate objections or positive responses that they had in the piece as a way of kind of, uh, you know, you're introducing a novel idea that if I can, if I can summarize it correctly, I think wait, the novel idea was... Uh, I'm not a new atheist in the sense that I'm not going to rule out that religious traditions uh, are have utility in some sort of sense, but I'm not a traditional uh, defender of religious faith and that I'm not looking at these things in faith terms. I'm looking at them as social practices, uh, whether they're rituals or institutions or habits of behavior, and I'm trying to empirically determine uh, what utility these things might have, what efficacy they might have. Um, so that's sort of a novel argument. And, and there's certainly a, a version of the piece where you can just make that argument uh, and put it out there. But it's novel enough that uh, I think any reader of the piece would want to wonder, well, what does a new atheist like Daniel Dennett think of something like this? Or what does someone who, uh, you know, are there people who are interested in uh, religion, but also interested in empirical science who might be receptive to this? And what would they say about it? And to, to incorporate for the reader those reactions in, in the piece all, all in one. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so I'll give you examples of how that happened. So in, in my interview with, with Steve Pinker, who I'm very grateful to for taking time to talk with me about this, um, he wanted, he very you know, strongly stressed the view that, well, you can't cherry pick, Dave. You, know, you can't just talk about the few things that religion does well. And in that, I realized, well, it's going to be very important for me to be clear about my argument. That is, I'm not trying to be an apologist for, for religion. And I don't think I would have worried about that if I didn't get the pushback from Steve on that. And so my argument was, you know, I... I want to cherry pick. I'm not trying to defend <laughs> religion. My goal, just like when you go, you know, when you when you bioprospect, is to find things that may work and, and test them. And so that became an important part of the piece to not to, to make that argument that I'm not an apologist. So that's interesting. You're telling me that the, the interview with Pinker wasn't just useful for the exchange with Pinker that's in the piece, yeah. but that there are other aspects of the piece mm -hmm. in terms of how you framed your material, that's right. caveats you might have put in. I believe there's a line in the piece 
very early on in the published version that says something like, I am no apologist for religion. Right. You're saying that something like that might not have been in the piece had it not been for the exchange with Pinker. Right. Exactly. That's interesting. Exactly. Because sometimes, you know, you know your own view and it's hard to know how, what lens other people will see it through unless you talk to them. And so I think that was the benefit that I had by doing interviews here. When I talked to Krista Tippett, she had this great, um, this great term, which she, she said, I mean, you know, I'm talking about elements of ritual or meditation or things that I think psychologically produce an effect as part of religious um, uh, practices. She said, yeah, she goes, I, I call those spiritual technologies. And I thought, that's the greatest term ever for what I'm talking about. Um, and the reason I say that is because it, it's a term that really encapsulates the idea in a way that a lay audience, and by lay I mean non-scientific audience, can actually very rapidly understand what I'm talking about. That's super interesting. In general, uh, we journalists are always looking for convenient little handholders for ideas uh, or little labels that allow you to identify an idea. It's, it's not just journalists who do it, academics do it too. Uh, uh, you know, Adam Smith had the invisible hand and John Rawls had fail of ignorance and David Hume had confined generosity. If it, It's never a bad idea to have a succinct formulation for an idea. Uh, journalists, I feel, are particularly uh, attuned to those, uh, those sort of formulations. And it is interesting when you first talked to me about the piece, I remember you talked a lot about, you know, that religions can be seen as having tools, uh, uh, I, you know, I can't really remember many phrases beyond tools. Uh, and I remember having to do a little intellectual work to understand what you were talking about. You were saying this, this practice can be understood as a tool for convincing people to behave in a certain way. And we were going to empirically investigate whether, in fact, that's an efficacious way to bring about this behavior. If you had said to me, you know, one thing I'm studying is spiritual technologies, you would have gotten I, it quicker, yeah. Or I sort of would have been like, well, that sounds new. I've yeah. never heard about that. Yeah. I've heard about tools. Right. I don't know what a religious tool is. Right. But if you had said, oh, there's things that are spiritual technologies, that's just a fancy way of saying religious practices and rituals and habits can be seen not only within their faith context, but also uh, within a social context and studied the way social psychologists study anything else. And in that sense, they're technologies. Um, I, I think I would have been even quicker to to see uh, the the value of the piece. So that's that's interesting that that came out of an interview with her too. Are you going to do more uh, interviews now in the future, uh, having uh, in your writing, having seen what uh, what results from it? Yeah, if it's a topic that I think you know uh, lends itself to that, I would for those very reasons. One, I I think it it just makes the piece better, both for the reader because they have they don't have to generate their own idea of what somebody would say who might have a countervailing view. Uh, but it also sharpens my thinking about it and uh, and gives me <laughs> good tools. So thank, <laughs> thank you, Krista. I will, I, will, I will be using that phrase, but giving you credit for it. So one thing I notice about uh, the, uh, the first draft of the piece, which I pulled up. Uh, that it's verbose. In, well, that's one way of uh, yeah. <laughs> getting at what I was saying. I noticed that, uh, you know, I've, we've worked together on many, many pieces. I, I don't know how many. I would probably estimate more than five and fewer than 15, something in that range. Sounds right. Um, uh, and uh, this is the only piece where I can remember the um, the draft coming in at maybe twice as long as the um, finished product. Um, do you have any recollections of of uh, why? Uh, yes. So two reasons. <laughs> one one was I think one more important than the other. One we thought we were going to have more real estate than we ultimately did <laughs> at the end. But the the the, the better part actually is. Uh, you said, you know, I'd rather have you do it long so that you can get all the ideas out there. Because sometimes when you're trying to fit stuff in a thousand words, 
for me, it's, it's, it can be difficult to do. And I might miss parts that you might think are actually the most interesting. And so what you've always encouraged me to do, and you can talk about this in general, if it's a strategy used in general, is you'd rather it be a little longer to give the full landscape of the idea. And then collaboratively, we can get it down to the essence that is most interesting. And, and I, kind of, I kind of like that. I mean, for academics, I don't know about you listeners, but in the folks that I've coached on doing this, the problem we all tend to have is we like to really lay out all the evidence such right. that by the time the evidence is done, you can't help but in some way agree or give some credence to what I'm saying. Right, right. And what I've learned from Jamie and other editors is people who are clicking through the internet don't have time to do that. And so they always want to know up front, what's the main point? And then if I'm interested in the main point, then I'll read on and see. And I, and I think that's for academics one of the hardest things to do, to be able to make your claim without laying the evidence out first. Because if I did that at a conference, I'd have 16 hands in the air saying, but, but, but. But I think in this venue, it works. Yeah, it's true as a general matter. My preference, and I'm not sure it's the preference of all editors, mm -hmm. uh, is that if I know a piece is going to be 1,000 words or 1,200 words, I tell people to feel free to write up to 2,000 words. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some editors might not like that, um, depending on mm -hmm. uh, temperament or mode of editing, various other differences there can be um, between and among editors. For me, my main anxiety is that someone who is not trained in writing very small compressed pieces is going to try to write a small compressed piece and in the course of doing that, uh, leave out all kinds of fascinating and interesting things. Um, and it's much easier for me to take something out or compress something on my own than it is to know what's missing. Um, and in addition, though I believe there's a lot of value in uh, learning to write in this form, I also don't expect that, uh, that it comes easily to people who don't do it for a living. Um, and so uh, I also don't want people uh, who I've assigned a piece to or accepted a piece from to feel as if he or she, um, you know, that the writing process has to be any more agonizing than writing already is. Uh, and by forcing people to, you know, try to write to a smaller length, um, I just feel like it's creating a, a an unnecessary problem. In this particular case, I think I remember encouraging you to write uh, long because you were also going to experiment with doing some interviewing and because the 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 scope and the ambition of the piece uh, was quite large, you often will write uh, about one particular study that you've done uh, and its implications. And that feels very manageable. Here, I knew you were going to be marshalling a lot of different kinds of data studies that you had done, studies that other people had done, and that you had been, you were looking to broaden the, the scope of the implications of this kind of research. And that just seemed like a lot of moving parts. And, uh, you know, I wanted, I wanted you to feel free to kind of get it all out there. So in the first draft, I also noticed that there is a, a sort of taxonomy that you lay out, a little three, three-part uh, division of, of questions that religions ask and answer. And you talk about whether uh, science has anything to say about those same questions or whether science can contribute to the asking and answering of those questions. Uh, and one part of this uh, is, is about God and whether God exists. Another part of this is about um, uh, you know, how, how, how people should act uh, and in what ways. And you talk a lot about um, traditional virtues like gratitude and kindness uh, and the degree to which um, religions uh, have traditionally been interested in trying to foment uh, these kinds of emotions um, in the service of 
uh, getting people to behave in the ways we'd like to behave. And then the third category is what we were talking about earlier, this notion of kind of spiritual technologies, specific ways in which religious traditions over time have decided that it's, you know, uh, effective to, to get a certain kinds of behavior. So whether it's meditation or uh, ritual and things like that. And I noticed in the, um, in the final version of the piece, in the first draft, you, you really lay out all three. There's a whole section on God. There's a whole section on uh, the traditional virtues and how they're understood scientifically. And then the third section is about the spiritual technologies. In the final version of the piece, there's a lot of emphasis on spiritual technologies. There's a tiny little emphasis, tiny, on uh, traditional virtues that you've studied. And there's really no discussion of of the God question at that kind of length as, as it was in the first draft. So one of the reasons that the draft shrank uh, was because we took uh, a kind of three-part uh, taxonomy uh, and really focused just on the third part. Do you remember any of... Uh... Yeah, I think, I, th I think so. So an editor who I, who, who I work with on my, on my uh, book right now, uh, Eamon Dolan, always calls it, he says, Dave, you do too much throat clearing. So, which is, you know, a way of saying, okay, I'm going to say all these things so you understand. Here's why I'm not dealing with the God question. Here's why I'm dealing with these things. And I think what you thought is, is actually right. You thought, look, the meat of this article, what's really interesting about it isn't so much of are people debating is there a God or not. It really isn't so much about the virtues. Yeah, everybody knows being kind and cooperating is a good thing. And I went through, you know, a whole spiel on, on why the evolutionary models show that being good is better in the long term than the short term. But you rightly thought, well, okay, that's great science and it's interesting, but that's not that new to people. What's new is this idea of spiritual technologies, the idea that they you know, are using psychological mechanisms without understanding them, um, that we're actually just rediscovering now as scientists work things like cognitive dissonance, et cetera. And so I think that's why you wisely <laughs> took those out because for the re for the reader to wade through all of that and be like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, you know, it would kind of dull the impact, I think, of the technology. Yeah, part. I mean, I was thinking of the dulling and also I, I kind of knew that this was a piece that we were going to want to present as something like what science can learn from religion. And I'm often mindful of the fact that the reader who's been presented with a provocative headline like that. Uh, to meet. <laughs> well, yeah, if she encounters a long section about how uh, God and the existence of God is not something that science, um, uh, you know, is going to learn from religion, mm -hmm. then it feels a little off point. And then, oh, the, you know, yeah. the gratitude and the and kindness are all very, you know, important traditional values that religions favor, but I don't think that there are a lot of people who, if you'd say, I want to talk about gratitude, I want to talk about kindness, think that we're immediately in a conversation about religion. Exactly. There's lots and of I other felt, routes to that. So yeah. I was just worried that the reader would feel that she was passing through all kinds of territory that was interesting and well-argued and um, you know, clearly had something to do with science and religion, but didn't really seem to directly have to do with this kind of question of, of what what science can learn from religion. I feel like the question of spiritual technologies was the one, you know, very specific case where the answer to the question is, well, these traditions, whether right or wrong or whether misguided or not misguided, mm -hmm. uh, uh, have these time-tested practices mm -hmm. uh, that these institutions promote. And mm -hmm. as a scientist, uh, it seems like those are potential hypotheses uh, mm -hmm. worth investigating. The hypothesis being something like, does this uh, practice work. 
Mm-hmm. Does it, in fact, bring people together? Does it, in fact, make people more compassionate? Does it, in fact, focus the mind? Whatever it is that yeah. the practice is, is intended to do. That's, that's really, I don't think we haven't had this, this, this discussion before, but I think that's your, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I never thought about the part, what science can learn from religion, and I start out by saying, well, we can't learn anything about God. <laughs> it's probably not, not the most compelling, <laughs> compelling route in. So yeah, no, I, I can clearly see why you did that, and on reflection, I think it makes it a much stronger piece. Yeah, I think academics, I find academics often... Throat clearing. It's, well, I mean, yeah. throat clearing is, yeah. can be uh, one way to put it. Maybe that's too dismissive, because sometimes throat clearing is really, um, uh, really just kind of empty air that you're yeah, using yeah, to yeah. fill space. But uh, more generously, I do feel like academics often do something that in an academic context really makes sense, which is to say, let's let's carve out all the conceptual possibilities of this mm-hmm. debate. And uh, this one is interesting and very important, but it's not the one we're really going to talk about here. And right. this one is interesting, important, and it's somewhat adjacent to what we're talking about here. Um, but the real one is this one. And I, I mean, weirdly, I was even taught that way to write in seventh grade when I learned to write my first thesis paper. We were told, opening paragraph ends with a thesis statement, three paragraphs of evidentiary support and conclusion. And we were told those three paragraphs should go from least powerful to most powerful point. Um, and in journalism, I kind of never uh, listened to my seventh grade teacher. I, I try to start with the most powerful point, And in the end, maybe I'll throw in a few additional considerations. But I, I'm trying to get right to that third uh, evidentiary paragraph. I think that's right. I mean, again, just in my language, you know, as academics, we want to lay out the landscape, if only well, for two reasons. One, one to show that we we know the landscape. We're not being naive. There are lots of other issues here. But to, to feel that we've got to give the reader the whole view. And I think you're right. The reader, in a book, that may be important. But in right, an op-ed, right. that is not important or not the goal. So one thing I'm interested in is is uh, what the response was to this piece. Um, as you were saying before, this is maybe the first time that you were explicitly rather than implicitly talking about the stakes of the kind of, uh, or the relevance of the kind of research that you've been doing in a very kind of narrow bore way on specific questions, the larger stakes or implications uh, of that work for this larger cultural debate about the worth of religion. Um, And uh, I assume that not having made that argument really uh, in an academic context before, um, this was really the first time you were making it and you were choosing to make Mm it in a you know, you know, very popular forum. And so I'm just uh, curious uh, what the response was like. Yeah, that's right. I, I had not made this in any other forum previously, academic or otherwise. Um, the response was, as you might imagine, very varied. Um, you know, the article was put up on certain websites as, you know, scientist sells out to religion or... Um, Actually, there weren't that many kind of hardcore religion sites that came down on it, although maybe I just don't see those. But in general, I, I have to say um, I was gratified. There are a lot of colleagues who who approached me and said, you know, you were you were very reasoned about this and and kind of share the view with different degrees of, of, right, right. of um, enthusiasm or acceptance. Um, and to me, that was that felt good because even if they didn't agree with me, they felt like I was still being a responsible scientist, right? And we mm-hmm. can we can have these debates about different views. And I had presented it in a way that is empirically defensible, right? It's not, it's not soft science. It's not stuff you're going to see in the self-help aisle. Um, and so it was gratifying. Um, I have to say, you know, y- 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 I have to resist sometimes the impulses when you see people, because it gets misconstrued. You know, there, right, were, right. there were certain sites who were saying, 
you know, scientist believes religion is good. And that's a little aggravating at times because when I actually put in the article, I am not an apologist for religion, but then it gets passed on that way. Um, but, you know, you can't, you can't help what happens uh, through the iterations of telephone. And, and how does, uh, the, the, how does, how does the, having the response play out um, in a non-academic context? Uh, how does that... You mean Twitter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How does that, how does that, uh, how is that different from, uh, you know, had you, uh, you know, presented this in, uh, in some kind of uh, scientific journal where you were, you know, trying to kind of raise some of these questions or themes, um, you know, presumably that would have played out in, in, in a different way. People presumably wouldn't have, uh, say, taken to Twitter or, or done blog posts about something like that. Um, it, I'm curious how, how you think about the, those two different uh, venues for having something like this uh, kind of responded to? I think for this type of argument, an argument that was kind of more a kind of meta point on, on how, how social scientists should approach some of these questions, um, it was more useful to do it in the times. And the reason I say this, if I did this at a conference, people would say, yeah, interesting, interesting, and then it would die. And until I had three papers with empirical evidence come out showing nothing much would happen in the academic world. Um, but here, you know, I, I had I had ministers and rabbis write me. I had just general public write me with questions, uh -huh. um, and some of the things they said again. We coming circling back to a point we had earlier helped reinforce or reinforce my thinking or change my thinking in in important ways, uh, and it 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 allowed it to it allowed the idea to have more of an ongoing life than just here's an idea presented at an academic conference. And, you know, it's an idea without data. I mean, I, I give you some examples of how it is, but usually the things that thrive at academic conferences as well should be the cases when you have convincing data to really right, show right. why your point is true. And here I'm I'm at the other part. I'm, I'm at an earlier point in the sequence, which is, hey, we need to do our science this way rather than, hey, I have an answer about mm -hmm. the nature of the universe that's going to shake up what you believe is true. Um, and so I think doing it in this way uh, allowed it to have more life and allowed me to get more intellectual feedback that shapes my thought going forward. And I understand you're now writing a, a book roughly in this territory. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it's tentatively titled How God Works, uh, A Scientist's Guide to What Religion Already Knew. Um, and it basically is that it follows from birth to death the the, the religious practices that many religions do, looking at the convergences between them as well as, hey, maybe some get it better than others, and looking at the scientific evidence for, for certain practices and how we now know they affect uh, the mind. And has, has any of the feedback from the times piece um, you know, resulted in uh, material in the book in any way? I think probably in the intro, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's where I'm kind of laying out the the argument. Uh, and so some of the studies I cite will you'll see again in the book, um, along with many more. But I think the Times piece helped me really shape what the meta argument was going to be. And I will say in no small part, probably helped me get enough interest to, again, get a book deal to do it, right? That's because it was it, it became clear that, hey, this is a question that people find interesting. So in the published uh, Times piece, you were clearly at pains to uh, emphasize what you were arguing uh, and what you weren't arguing, um, that you were not, uh, for instance, uh, defending all religion is good, uh, nor were you uh, suggesting that science was going to be able to confirm 
uh, any particular religious uh, practices efficacious. Um, but as you were saying, that you were even though you were at pains to uh, to do that in the piece, that you didn't feel that all the responses that you got to the piece, particularly some of the more uh, passionate ones. Uh, uh, really heard those distinctions. Um, is 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 that the kind of feedback that it's say in the writing of the introduction of the book has caused you to further um, uh, affect the way you're, you're framing the argument or the way you're presenting it, uh, or not? I think yes, a little bit because by by getting the in both ways, the the positive feedback lets me know what chords I'm hitting actually strike people, um, and so it allows me to get a better sense of what resonates with a wider audience. And so that's always useful as a writer, because especially for me working in, in a lab on this, what connects to wider folks' interest, having more insight is helpful. But on the more passionate negative ones, yeah, it, it allows me, you know, you always want to be able to clarify or counter-argue points that are being raised. And in, in the book, right, in the introduction, I have much more room to do that than I have in this, you know, whatever it was, 1,200-word piece. Well, thanks again so much, Dave, for, for coming in. And, and uh, I know that I, for one, am uh, looking forward enormously to, to reading the book. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me, Jamie. And thanks for, for doing this podcast. I think it's going to be useful for a lot of people. And just thanks for your, everything you do to kind of help us academics get our, our info and our ideas out there. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you again so much for listening to Line Edit. I'm James Ryerson. You can find out more about our project by following us on Twitter at The Line Edit, where you'll find videos about each of the pieces we discuss on the show, as well as news and information about upcoming guests, future workshops, and other events. That's at the underscore line underscore edit. Uh, Don't forget the underscores. We are very grateful to the John Templeton Foundation for its support. Uh, and to the incredible staff at its public engagement program who make all of this possible. The John Templeton Foundation supports a a wide range of work about the fundamental questions about what it is to be human, um, what this world is like, but it's the public engagement program that ensures that those insights are disseminated beyond the academy uh, to the widest possible audience. This episode was produced and hosted by me, James Ryerson, and was executive produced and edited by my partner in crime, Joseph Fridman. Our theme music was composed by Steve LaRosa at Wonderboy Audio. We are also, of course, especially appreciative of the Department of Psychology at the College of Science at Northeastern University, which is where this project is administered. Uh, special thanks to Lisa Feldman Barrett uh, at Northeastern University, to Mia Lobel at Pushkin Industries, to Jennifer Dale and the staff at the CUNY Newmark School of Journalism just down the street from the New York Times. And of course, thanks to Dave for the conversation. I hope everyone will check out his new book when it comes out. And I hope you'll join us next time for Line Edit.